0: But to give you a bit of context, because obviously we've been going through the book of John, and now we're going to be going back, 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 back um, to the old, an event in the Old Testament, an event with Moses. Um, and then many of us know the account of Moses and God speaking to Moses, and through Moses leading the, leading the Israelites out of slavery. And there's so much that, that God teaches us through this. Um, I mean, as we read the account, not only is it God recording history, but God is also wanting to teach us through it, and it ultimately wants to point us to Jesus through it. And as we begin, I want to remind us of God's plan for Israel. Because God's plan for Israel, his plan of redemption for the people, was twofold. It was not just about getting them out of Egypt, but it was also about getting them into a new land, a land promised to Abraham, their forefather, years and years and years ago. And when God first appears to Moses, this is exactly what he says to him. If you've got your Bibles in Exodus, chapter three, verse seven to eight. It says this, and I'll just briefly read it. It says this, And the Lord said, and this is Exodus 3, 7-8, And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. And I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. That's re- I mean, before we even go on, and that's not even the main point we look at, look at the, the beautiful language that God uses. He says, look, I have surely seen. You know those moments when you're wondering, God, do you see? God, do you know? And I imagine the, the Israelites must have felt that at times. As they're enslaved, generation after generation, the thought must have come into their mind, the wrestle must have come into their mind of, God, where are you? God, do you see? God, do you know? And God comes to Moses and says, Moses, I have seen. I'm not being blind to what's been going on. I have seen the oppression of my people. I've heard every single cry that they have made. And he says, I know their sorrows. I know their sufferings. I know their pain. And then he says this. So he he has surely seen their oppression. He has heard their cries. He knows their sorrows. And then he says this. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hands of of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. He says, look, I have seen, I've heard, I know, and so I have now come. I have come down to deliver my people. And then did you notice the, the twofold promise in that? He says it says God came down to deliver them out, but then also to to bring them up. So to deliver them out of Egypt, but to then to deliver them up unto the promised land. And we we're, we're not going to focus on the first part of that promise, which many of us know that God fulfills that first promise of taking them out of Egypt, you know, and, and, and it's such an amazing narrative. you can see it in mo- films and movies, but obviously it 's better if you read the original material, because <laughs> they always like to change bits here and there, but he, he takes them out. Pharaoh and his army are no match for God, and he kept that first half of the promise, right to bring them out, and now we 're going to look at the next bit of when God wants to fulfill that second promise. He wants to fulfill the second part of that promise, which is to enter into the promised land. But we're going to find that there are some difficulties on the way. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to Numbers chapter 13, and it says this in verse 1 and verse 2. It says this, And the Lord said to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the children of Israel from each tribe of their fathers, you shall send a man, every one a leader among them. So once again, God again speaks to Moses. So this is taking place. Remember, God through Moses has brought the nation of Israel out of Egypt, And now he is taking them through the wilderness. We've already seen a number of different things happening with the the Ten Commandments and a load of other things have taken place. And now they get to this point where they're nearing the promised land. And once again, God comes to Moses. He speaks to Moses and he gives him a mission. He wants Moses to send 12 men, one from each tribe, to spy out the land that he has promised to them. And he's sending them in so, so that they can have a first-hand experience of what awaits them. So he's like, hey, I want you to send out some spies. I want you to send out these guys. They're going to they're gonna spy out the land. They're going to come back and give a report to the people, a report to Moses. And so Moses is obedient. Moses gathers the men and he gives them their instructions. And you see from verse 3 further down, you see the names of these different men. And in your own time, if you get a chance, do feel free to, to read through it. But let's skip down to verse 17, where Moses says this. In verse 17 to 20, Moses says, well, yeah, yeah. says this. Then Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, go up this way into the south and go up to the mountains And see what the land is like, whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, few or many, whether the land they dwell in is good or bad, whether the cities they inhabit are like camps or strongholds, whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are forests there or not. And then he says this, be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first Ripe grapes. Moses gives the instructions to the men before him, the spies before him. He tells the men, Look, I want you to report back to me on what the land is like, on what the people are like, on what the cities are like. He wants to know everything that they're going to be entering into, everything they're going to be up against once they enter this land. But then he ends his instruction. With a call. And that call is to be of good courage. He says to the men, take courage. Because the mission ahead is an unknown one. The mission ahead could potentially be a dangerous one. So he says to them, look, I want you guys to be courageous because they're going to enter a moment where they must leave the comfortable surroundings and embrace the unknown. They don't know what is about to face them. They don't know if these people are going to be hostile to them. They They don't know what is going to happen. It is simply these 12 guys going on their own to scout out the land. And often, when we think of Christianity, we don't often associate it with with the word courage, right? Often, if you were to speak to somebody on the street and you, and, and if you were to ask them, you know, Christianity does that encourage? Do you do you kind of put those two words together? Not many people, I think, would say yes. They don't generally think of courage when they think of Christianity. But there, there are moments throughout Scripture where God continually calls His people to be courageous. The truth is, to live a life that truly follows Jesus is going to require exactly that. It's going to require courage. And I think so often that we, we forget that. That God is often calling us to go outside of our comfort zone. And we actually need to remember that actually following Jesus, at times, is going to require courage, because at times it's going to be uncomfortable, at times it's even going to be dangerous. There's one author who explains it this way, he says this, what we desperately need to re-understand is that it's dangerous to be a true Christian. Anyone who takes his or her Christianity seriously will leave, will realise that that crucifixion isn't something that happened to one man 2,000 years ago. Nor was martyrdom just the fate of his early followers. It should be an omnipresent risk for every Christian. Christian Christians should and need in certain ways to live dangerously if they're to live out their faith. It's time for communal congregational action and corporate risk. To really, truly follow Jesus, there are going to be moments where he calls us to take risks. He calls us to step outside of our comfort zone. He's going to call us to be courageous. And I think one of the main reasons he does that is, and there's many reasons he does, one of it is so that we would be reliant on him. We would actually seek to rely on him. But it's also a chance that our faith is tested. One of uh, A Christian man, Hudson Taylor, made this observation. He says this, Unless there's an element of risk in our exploits for God, there's no need for faith. Unless we step out of our comfort zone, there is no need for us to exact faith. Because we can do it ourselves. And here we'll see the 12 spies, they, they have to take some courage. They have to step out in faith. And as we'll see later on, unfortunately, although the 12 men initially step out in faith, Israel as a whole are going to refuse to do so, as we'll see a bit later on. But first of all, let's look at these men, the 12 spies. So the men, they are obedient and they go and they spy out the land. For 40 days they search out the land, they gather intel before returning to speak to Moses and the rest of Israel. So we we'll skip down to Numbers 13 and and verse 27. So the men, they've gone, they spied out the land, and now they've returned. And it says this in verse 27. Then they told him and said, we went to the land where you sent us. It truly flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. So they, they come to Moses and they say, hey Moses, that the land was good and the land was fruitful just as God had said, and, and just as they had hoped for. It's like, man, this, this land is good. This land is everything that God has promised. This land is fruitful. They even bring back some of the fruit so they can see firsthand. But then, there's a little problem. Verse 28 says this, Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. See, the land is good, but the people who currently inhabit the land are strong. The opposition that lies in front of them is greater than they. Here, Israel once again stands On the edge of receiving a promise. The edge of receiving a promise of God, but between them and that promise stands a huge obstacle. And we've already seen that, right? We've already seen that. That takes place. The idea that here Israel stands on the edge of a promise that God has given them, but between them and that promise is this big, huge obstacle. We've already seen it. We've seen it when they were slaves in Egypt, right? at that point, God had promised to deliver them, but Pharaoh stood in their way. A man and a nation more powerful than Israel, but not more powerful than God. And if God was faithful to deliver them that first promise, would he not be faithful to do the same now? And that's exactly what Caleb thinks. you to love Caleb. What a cool guy. Caleb then stands up and says this. One of the spies, Caleb, says this. Verse 30. Then Caleb, he quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. So here they say, look, here's the, they give the report. The land is good, but the opposition is strong. And then Caleb steps forward and he's like, he quiets the people. And he, and he says to Moses, and Moses, people, look, let us go. We can occupy this land. We are able to overcome it. He stands up. He's like, hey, let's, let, let's go for it. Let's overcome the enemy. And I'm, I'm fully convinced that he says this not because the threat isn't real. And he doesn't say this because the opposition isn't great, and he doesn't say this because the opposition before them isn't strong, right? Sometimes we can do that as people, right? We try and downplay, we're like, actually, no, this this is not as bad. It's not as big a difficulty. It's not as big an obstacle. It's not as big a deal. But actually, I don't think that's what Caleb is saying here. Actually, rather, Caleb is 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 saying these things and has this kind of confidence not because the enemy before them isn't a strong one, but rather because his view, of God, his view of God is greater than his view of the enemy before them. His view of God is greater than his view of the enemy before him. And just like last time, Israel couldn't save themselves. And just like last time, look, they can't do it again on their own, but God can. God can do it. But unfortunately, not everybody shared the same faith as Caleb. It says this in verse 31. But the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. You see, the other men fail to remember God, they can't see past. The opposition. They take their eyes off God and they firmly plant them on the enemy before them. And and this this has this has nothing to do with the difference between like a pessimist and an optimist, right? You know, in in the world we have people who are like half glass full people and half glass empty people. Okay, and this 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 isn't a case of well, Caleb's a half glass full people and the other spies are. half glass empty people that's not the case here this is not a case of being a pessimist or an optimist and whatever our natural leanings may be this is this is all about faith this is a case of faith and who will they trust will the people trust God and the promises that he's given them and all that God has done for them so far or will they try and trust in something else and we will often be put in similar situations. Actually, to be honest, whole life really is about that. Who will we trust? Will we choose to put our trust in Christ? Will we choose to trust God and all that he has said? Or will we try, or will we listen, or will we listen to something or somebody else? And ultimately, that's how sin itself entered the world, right? Adam and Eve choose not to trust God, but rather they choose to trust something else. They choose to trust themselves. They choose to trust the lies of the serpent instead of trusting God himself. So who will you trust? And we see this next verse, verse 32. It says this, And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men, of great stature there we saw the giants the descendants of Anak came from the giants and we were like grasshoppers in our own sight and so we were in their sight you see they give the other spies they give a bad report to the people of Israel which entirely focuses on the problem in front of them right it's entirely focused on the problem in front of them and their inability it's simply, those guys are huge and we're small. It's like, man, those guys are like giants and we are, we're like grasshoppers. We are no match for them. There is no call for courage. There is no call to trust God. There's no remembrance of all that he's already done. There's no remembrance of all of his faithfulness. It is simply, the enemy is greater than us. And this is how they respond. Verse 1 of chapter 14 says this in verse 1 to 4. So all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, if only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in this wilderness, Why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword? That our wives and our children should become victims? Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us select a leader and return to Egypt. The people, they hear the news and they turn on Moses and Aaron. And don't 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 miss this. It's, it's easy easy to miss, or easy to kind of read and be just like, okay, yeah, the the, the native Israel turned on Moses and Aaron. But think about it. the whole congregation. It Says all the congregation, a whole nation comes before Moses and complains. I I, I can't even begin to imagine how difficult that must have been for Moses, right? If any of you have worked in retail, I have worked in retail, do work in retail. It's great fun. You have one person come up in your grill and give you some stick, and I don't, I've never had it that bad, but I've had it enough to, like, be like taken aback from it. But imagine a whole nation. You look before you, and there are literally thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands, and then a couple more thousands of people who literally have issue with you and are making their, uh, well, they're making their opinions known. And it's not the first time this will happen to Moses. But I want you to think about it. Here is Moses after all that he's done for the people. He's led the people. And now the people are once again turning against him. And as I say, it's not, this isn't the first time this has happened. And you see the people, as we just read, they hurl accusations at Moses. They hurl accusations at God. Why have you done this? How dare you, God? How dare you, Moses, take us out of Egypt? How dare you rescue us from slavery? How dare you put us in this Position. They completely forget everything that God has done for them. They completely forget everything that God has promised to them. There's no gratitude, no thankfulness, no faith, no turning to God to seek help. It is simply grumbling. That's what it is, just simple grumbling, complaining. And perhaps the most radical aspect of their response is their great plan. You see that at the end there, this is their great plan, right? Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. They would rather go back to slavery than trust the God who delivered them from slavery. Let me say that again. They would rather go back to slavery than trust the God who delivered them from slavery. Just a brief Fault. When we look through the New Testament, we see that sin is described as slavery. We see Jesus speak of it, we see Paul speak of it as well. The idea that sin is slavery. And there are moments that, even as Christians, we are set free from slavery, right? We we give our lives to Christ, we're set free. We are forgiven of our sin. Now, Jesus offers us a new life. And then as we're walking with Christ, there are moments just like the Israelites where we're tempted to look back. We're tempted to look back at that slavery. And we we kind of idolize it, don't we? We kind of like, actually, slavery wasn't so bad. Maybe I should go back. And, and, And it's easy for us to look at this and kind of be like, How stupid could the Israelites be? You know, why would they want to do such a thing? Easy for us to say because we know the whole story and we kind of look at it from an outside perspective. But it really is that crazy when we do that in our own lives. When we instead of trusting the God who has set us free from slavery, we seek to go back to the very thing that enslaved us. We seek to go back to to that which was sin to a certain lifestyle or a certain past, instead of trusting all that God has for the future. And often what God has for the future, at times, is more uncomfortable. I mean, God doesn't, doesn't, God doesn't say that them entering the promised land isn't going to be without its difficulties, it's not going to be without its, with its discomfort. But through it, he's, he's, he's promising to bring them through. He's promising this land and something which is so much greater and so much more fruitful than slavery. And I think he offers us that same, that same thing as well. He calls us out of slavery, he calls us out of sin so that we could know better and that we could flourish with him. We could enter a land and walk with him in a place where there is flourishing, where a place where there is fruit. So the question is, will we trust the God who calls us out of slavery or will we seek to go back to that slavery? And but looking back at the people, I think the real thing stopping them from entering the promised land is it's not really their inhabit, it's not really the inhabitants. And it's not it's not Moses, and in some ways it's not even God, it's it's really themselves. The true enemy is much closer than they think. The true enemy is in their very own hearts. It says this in the next verse in verse five, it says this in verse five to eight. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel. But Joshua, the son of Nun, and, and, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. And they spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, The land we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. You see these guys, Moses and Aaron, they first of all, they, they, they fall on their faces before the congregation. And then we see Caleb and Joshua, they, they're also pleading, they are pleading with the nation because they understand the seriousness of what is taking place here. They reinforce the fact that the land is good. Like, like look, people, look, nation, Israel, you've got to understand this land is good. But more importantly than that, they reinforce the fact that it is God who will bring them into that land. Did you see when it says there it says, Look, if the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us into the land. And give it to us. Essentially, they say, look, Israel, this isn't about us. This is about God. This is about Him giving us for that. Not, this isn't about, we're not going to get the land for ourselves, but rather it's about God giving us for that and us trusting Him. Essentially, look, just as God was faithful in Egypt, He's going to be faithful now. And they're pleading with the people. The, uh, the Israelites think wrongly think that the task relies on them, but they couldn't be further than from the truth. The task relies fully on God. It is, he is the one who will give them the victory and it is their job to trust him. It is their job to trust him and trust that he will accomplish it. And part of being a Christian is exactly that. It is trusting that the Lord who calls us to accomplish a task, it's the same Lord who will give us everything we need to do so. So the same God who calls us to accomplish a task is the same God who will also give us everything we need to do so. And maybe that is simply the core of being, being more Christ-like, right? I mean, that is one of the... you know Often when we think of calling, right? We think of, we think of vocation, right? We think of God calling us to either a specific location or a specific job, which is very true. God does do those things. But so, so many times throughout the, throughout the scripture we see when God is calling us and, and it talks about the idea of calling. It's often about becoming somebody rather than just going places. That is true. There's going to be moments he calls us to go to a particular place, to do a particular thing. But even more so than that, he calls us to become certain kind of people, to become a kind of person. And there are moments where you look at that call, right, and you can be like, Jesus, how on earth can I become that person? Jesus, you know my past. How can I become this? Or Jesus, you know what I've done here. How can I become a godly father? Or how can I become a godly worker? Or how can I become more passionate about you? And how can I become more giving? How can I become more thankful? We can have those, those we see those calls in Scripture. We're like, Lord, how do I accomplish this? And God's like, look, I'm giving you the call, but I'm also the one who's going to accomplish the call through you. You've got to trust me. Put your faith in, in me and trust me. Step out with me. You're, to have to, you're still going to have to take that step of trust. You're going to have to take that step of faith. But trusting that as you do so, I'm going to carry you through it. It's just like when, um, you know, think back to when Peter walks on the water, right? And you've got to love Peter. You know, Peter, Peter's is the one who goes, "Lord, if you command me to do it, I'm going to do it." And, and God says, "Look, come, come." Jesus is like, "Hey, Peter, come and walk on the water." But Jesus, but Peter still has to make that make that first step to step out of that boat and keep his eyes on Jesus. And, as he does so, he actually finds that he begins to walk, and it's not because Peter is so super awesome because, as we know, there are moments many moments so he's not super awesome and as he begins to sink, why does he sink? Because he takes his eyes off Jesus It's the same for us as Jesus calls us to step out of the boat, he calls us to fix our eyes on him on him and trust him as we take each and every step and 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 that's exactly what. Israel is being called to do here, they're being called to trust him. And Moses once again speaks to the people and he reminds them of a truth. He reminds them that it is God who is going to accomplish this, and it's God who is with them. And it's because God is with them that they have no reason to fear. It says this in Numbers 14 and verse 9. This is it says this and only do not rebel against the Lord, nor fear the people of the land, for they are our bread. Their protection has departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. So here's Moses, Aaron, Joshua, and Caleb. And as they're pleading for the people, one of the things they say is this. Only do not rebel against the Lord, nor fear the people of the land. And, as, and the very last thing they say is, do not fear them. Once again, they're pleading with the people. And they say two things, right? There's two things that they say. They say, do not rebel and do not fear. And, and they repeat the second of these two, right? Do not fear. Do not fear. The issue of fear is a a universal problem. It's a universal struggle, right? If I were to give you, what is it that you... If I was to ask you a question, what is it that you fear? What is it that you are afraid of? We can maybe some, you know, come up with, you know, maybe things less deep like, I don't know, spiders, snakes. Three S's, right? Three S's. Spiders, snakes and sharks. Can't do any of those, okay? But think about things you're... Think about things maybe less on the surface stuff, but things that like you're more afraid of deep inside, deeper stuff that you're afraid of. What is it that you fear? And as I say, the issue of fear is a universal problem. And God God knows this. And this is perhaps why one of the most repeated commands in the Bible is fear not. Time and time again, fear not, fear not, fear not, do not fear, do not be afraid. And in the case of Israel, they are enslaved by fear of people. They're, they're, they're afraid. They're afraid of the opposition in front of them. They're afraid of, of what the people in the other land are capable of doing to them. And so often we can be in the similar situation. We can be afraid of people. We can be afraid of what people think of us, or afraid of what people will do to us, or being afraid of if we'll be accepted by people. Or maybe we're afraid of something else. Maybe we're afraid of change. Or maybe we're afraid of death. And the list goes on and on and on. And just like Israel, we can easily find ourselves enslaved by fear, guided by fear, governed by fear. So how do we respond to that? How do we respond to our fear? And I think the answer is in the verse, and pretty much follows almost every single command to fear not in the Bible. I, I, I challenge you, if you own have time, have a look. Almost every time that God puts a forward a command where he says, do not fear, do not be afraid, it is often followed with this reason, because the Lord is with us. It says it in the verse we just read, only do not rebel against the Lord, nor fear the people. And then a bit further down, and the Lord is with us, do not fear them. You see, we respond to fear by seeing God for who he truly is, which is bigger than the thing that we fear. So we respond to fear by seeing God for who he truly is, and that is bigger than the thing that we fear. And so often, in what happens in our lives is, is that the thing that we fear becomes big and God becomes small. And this is exactly the case for the Israelites, okay? The enemy in front of them in their eyes is big. Their failure to turn to God really shows that God in their mind is small. And that's how we often, and, and that's when we are enslaved by fear, that's exactly what it is. We, we, our view of that which we fear is so big and our view of God is so small and it needs to change. It needs to change so that our view of God is great and big and bigger than the thing that we fear. Because it's true, because God is bigger. And as Christians, we have... God is bigger. Bigger than, our, bigger than death. Bigger than, than the opinion of others. Bigger than the strength of others. We know that God is, is in control and God loves us. And because of that, we... No longer need to be afraid. We can trust him. And, and sometimes that sense of fear maybe is still there. But by grace, we step out in spite of that, right? We don't allow that to be governed up, govern us, right? I may still be afraid of snakes, but hopefully the Lord doesn't call me to go to somewhere snake-infested. But say, for example, there is something which you fear. Now are often moments where God's like, "Hey, look, I know you're afraid of doing this. I want you to step out. And sometimes the the feeling of that fear doesn't necessarily go away. But by his grace, we can trust him and step out. So that we're no longer governed by fear, but rather we're governed by God. But unfortunately, as we see with the, the nation of Israel, they are not guided and governed by God, but they are guided and governed by themselves. It says this in verse 10 to 12. It says this, And all the congregation said to stone them with stones. So this is what happens. The congregation, they're like, Man, let's just kill Moses. Let's get over with this. Let's get a new leader. Let's head back. And as this is happening, it says this, Now the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of meeting before the children of Israel. And then the Lord said to Moses, How long will these people reject me? How long will they not believe me with all the signs which I have performed among them? And then he says this, this is God speaking, I will strike them with pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. So what happens is they pick up stones to kill Moses, and as they're, as they're planning this, as they're planning to kill Moses, and, 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 and Aaron and Caleb and, and Joshua, God steps in. God exposes the sin of the people and despite, that all, despite all that God had done for them, all the signs he had showed them, delivering them from Egypt, providing for them in the wilderness, the people refused to believe in him and instead despise him, instead reject him. Look I mean look at what God says, how he says, How long will these people reject me? How long will they not believe in me? He says, Man, my people have rejected me. My people have not believed in me. And and, and think about it for a second. As as Israel stand up and plan to kill Moses. You see, Moses is, is simply acting as God's voice. Moses is simply speaking on behalf of God. He's simply a messenger to the people. As they plan to pick up stones to throw at Moses, it is as if in their hearts they are picking up stones to throw at God. In essence, just as much as they want Moses dead, they want God dead. Because Moses is just simply God's mouthpiece, as they seek to plan to kill Moses, deep down in their hearts, they want to kill God. They want God out of the picture, and for such an act, there's only one fair judgment, and that's death. God says that He will strike down Israel and start again. He's like He will make a new nation, a nation greater and mightier than Israel. And he has every right to do so. God right now has every right to say, look, I'm done with you guys. After, I've given you chance after chance and time after time and I've done so much for you, but this is it. But by his grace, by God's grace, and God, remember, God knows what's going to happen here. God knows what is about to happen. And by God's grace there is somebody who is willing to step in the gap. There is somebody willing to step in between God and the people and plead on the people's behalf. And we'll find that it is perhaps, well, not somebody you would necessarily expect to do so. It says this in verse 13, And Moses said to the Lord, verse 13 to 14, And Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear it, Oh, sorry, I skipped a bit, didn't I? No, I did, I was right, sorry. Verse 13 says this. So well, I'll go from verse 12. God says that I will strike them down. And he says that I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. And then Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear it. For by your might you brought these people up from among them. And then they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, Lord, are among these people, that you, Lord, are are seen face to face and your cloud stands above them and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. We'll come to the rest of Moses' intercession, but essentially Moses makes intercession for the people and intercession is the act of intervening on behalf of another. So intercession is is the action of intervening on behalf of another. Another, another way you could perhaps think about it is the idea of, of a lawyer coming before a judge on behalf of the accused. But perhaps what is most surprising about this this about the fact that it is Moses inter, intercessing for the people, the most surprising thing about it is that moments ago they tried to kill him. Moments ago they're planning to kill Moses. They're complaining against Moses, and then Moses. Is now stepping forward and pleading on behalf of those who just were about to kill him. I am not going to lie. If that was me, I would. I would not. That that would be. That would not be me. If that was me. If I was in Moses' position, I'd be like, you know what, Lord God, go for it. Yep, yeah, let's start again. Because think about it. God. God comes to Moses like, Hey Moses, look, I'm going to. Disinherit this people, and through you, Moses, I'm gonna raise up a new nation. And this new nation is gonna be greater, it's gonna be mightier. If I was Moses, i would be like, About time, Lord, yes, let's be done with these guys. They try to kill me, let's get a new people. But this, but thankfully, this isn't the heart of Moses. He pleads on behalf of the people. He 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 pleads on their behalf, but his Argument and we'll read a bit more of his kind of argument, his intercession, his plea, does not involve defending the qualities of the accused. So Moses' Moses' approach is not going to be, but God, these people are so great, these people are awesome, Lord. They've done this and they've done this. That isn't that isn't where Moses goes at at all. That's not going to be his plan, but rather his plea involves appealing to the character of the judge. It is, it is not the goodness of the Israelites that will, that, will, that will save them, but it will be the goodness of God. It says this, verse 15, Now, if you kill these people as one man, then the nations which have heard of your fame will, will speak, saying, because the Lord was not able to bring this people to the land which he swore to give them, Therefore, he killed them in the wilderness. Essentially, Moses stands before God and says, God, but what about your glory? What about your fame? Moses knows that God is committed to his glory, to his fame, to his name being proclaimed and honoured and worshipped. And there is, there is nothing more valuable, more precious than, than God himself in the whole of existence. There is nothing as worthy of our worship. There is nothing more worthy than, worthy of our adoration than God himself. And Moses essentially asked, him, if you abandon your people, God, what will the other nations say? God has an audience. The world is watching how he treats his people is going to reflect his character. How he treats his people is going to reveal who he is. Moses understands that God's that, that God is committed to his glory, to his fame, but also that God's glory goes hand in hand with our good. Moses understands that God's glory goes hand in hand with our good. They are not in opposition, but rather God seeking his glory results in our good, right? So often we think about, right, the idea that God is committed to his glory, but he's also committed to our good. And those two things do not work in opposition to each other, but rather work alongside each other. And we even see this in the account of Lazarus, which we looked at the last few weeks, right? Let me read you just a few verses of what Jesus says about the reasons for Allowing, but first of all, allowing Lazarus to die so that he could then resurrect him. Okay, it says this in John 11 verse 4. But when Jesus heard it, he said, "This illness does not lead to death; it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it." Okay, so John 11. First of all, first of all, he says that this is about the, the, I'm. I'm. This miracle is taking place with Lazarus for the purpose of God's glory for Christ glory, that he would be glorified. So that's God's glory. Verse 15 of 11, but then he says this, and for your sake, Jesus speaking to his disciples, and for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So here this is for for the people's good, for for their sake, for their benefit, for their good, so that they would believe. So first of all we saw, for God's glory, and then we see for the people's good. And in verse 40 of 11, Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Once again, God's glory. But then verse 41 to 43 says, So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. You see, God's glory and our good go hand in hand. God seeking his glory is our greatest good. And Moses knows this. And that's why Moses appeals to God, what about your glory? But then Moses continues on and he says this in the next verse in verse 17 and now i pray that the power of my lord be great just as you have spoken saying the lord is long suffering and abundant in mercy forgiving iniquity and transgression but he by no means clears the guilty Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. And then he says in verse 19, Pardon the iniquity of this people, I pray, according to the greatness of your mercy, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt, even until now. So after appealing to God's glory, hey God, what about your glory? Moses then focuses on God's love. He says, But God, you're long suffering. God, you're abundant in mercy. Some translations will say steadfast in love. God, your love look, God, don't wipe us out because for your glory, but also don't wipe us out, God, because you're loving. Because your love is steadfast. The idea is steadfast, it's committed, it keeps going, it bears long, it bears much. And, and most of it, because, because of your glory, because of your love. Pardon us forgive us. Because you are God who forgives, you are God who is above, who 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 demonstrates mercy. And he appeals to that mercy. And he ends that. Pardon the iniquity of this people, I pray, according to the greatness of your mercy, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt, even until now. Sin is great, but Christ is greater. You even see that in the verse, right? Sin, Sin even has a generational effect, the fact that it is that great and it's that deep. You know, when he says that, He by no means clears the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Sin has consequences. Sin has actions. And, and if somebody dedicates their life to sin, it dedicates their life to completely rebelling against God, it will affect their family. But by God's grace, you could have the worst upbringing, you could have the worst father or mother who are completely, fully committed to sin, and that will affect your life. But God's grace is even greater and even further than that; that it can it can bring children of those who have completely rebelled against God. They can come to know Christ. They can have a new life. They no longer have to be dictated or guided by that, but rather they can they can experience the grace of God. But for us as Christians, this also encourages us to be like you know what actually. I want to dedicate my life to Christ. That doesn't necessarily mean my kids will automatically become Christians. But as I follow Christ faithfully, I want to put my kids in the best position to say yes to Jesus. I want to display to them, hey, look, this is Jesus. And this is who he is. And I've often, uh, one part has kind of given the illustration, the idea of a chain and the idea of being a link in a chain. And some of us are chains. If you were to think and each each link represents a person in, in your in your family history, right? So your your great granddad and your sorry, your great great granddad, your great granddad and your granddad and your dad, and each chain has a link and a link, right? And sometimes there's break there, those links can be broken. And you can come from a, a chain, a family chain which is just full of broken links. But by God's grace you can become a new link to form a new chain. And and God God does think generationally. He does He has such a great vision ahead of us. I mean, think about we, even with Israel, where he's making promises which are to their kids, 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 you know. God God thinks that far ahead. And as you make choices today, it can even affect it's going to affect your kids. It's going to affect your kids and your kids' kids. So choose to follow Christ. Choose to display the gospel to them and to love them. And we see here that Well, we'll see here in a second how God now responds to this. Moses has been like, man, I'm pleading for these people, God. And this is how God responds. It says this in verse 20 to 24. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Because all these men who have seen my glory and the signs which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness have put me to the test now these ten times and have not heeded my voice, they certainly shall shall not see the land of which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who rejected me see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit in him and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land where he went and his descendants shall inherit it. Now the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valley Tomorrow, turn and move out into the wilderness by the way of the sea. God hears the cries of Moses and he chooses not to wipe them out completely. Right then, God is playing. like, look, that's it. I'm going to wipe them out completely. I'm going to get myself a new nation. But instead, he chooses not to. He pardons them. But there's still consequences for that generation to experience. The current generation will not enter the promised land. Instead, they will spend the rest of their lives walking around the wilderness and then once this generation who has been unfaithful has passed away, their children, their descendants will be able to go into the land. And the only exceptions are going to be Joshua and good old Caleb. What an awesome guy Caleb is. Right? What a great... Example, Because Caleb had a different spirit. He was a man who was willing to follow God. There is so much that we can learn from this account. And one of the main things we can learn is, is hopefully from the mistakes that Israel make. Right? The narrative challenges us. To be people like Caleb, who are fully committed to following God wherever he leads us. I don't think that's the main purpose of the text. We'll get to that in a second. I don't think that's the main thing that Christ even wants to teach us through this text. But it is one thing. It's like, hey, Caleb is an awesome guy. As seeing as he... Follow his example. Choosing to step forward in faith, knowing that God is with us. And because he's with us, we no longer need to be enslaved to fear. It's also a reminder of God's, God's patience and God's love. How instead of wiping them out, he's actually saying, look, you know what, I will allow you to live. I'm going to still provide for you in the wilderness until you pass away. And your children are going to be able to see this promised land. And we can talk about ideas of how, this kind of maybe alludes to the idea of even as Christians, we give our lives to Christ, we are a new creation, but the old man has to die. That old guy who we were has to die so that we can embrace that which Christ has to offer us. And that is certainly true. But I think the greatest message in all of this is all about Jesus. Because once again we see that Jesus, Jesus is our greater Moses. And just as Moses intercedes for the guilty Israelites, Jesus intercedes for you and Jesus intercedes for me. Like the Israelites, because of our sin, we stand before God guilty. We stand before God deserving punishment. But in that moment, God himself, Jesus, the one whom we not only tried to kill, but we actually succeeded in doing so, steps forward on our behalf. He's our great attorney. He steps in the gap and he agrees to take the punishment that we deserved. He takes that punishment on the cross so that we could be forgiven, so that we could enter a far greater promised land than a physical land. And man, people are still fighting over this land even today. But rather, God offers us something far greater than that. He offers us himself. He says, look, let me step in the gap. Let me intercede for you, a guilty people, so that you could be pardoned and so that you could enter into a relationship with me. So as we kind of bring it to a close, I want you to, as as you go away today, to be reminded of God's Committed and steadfast love. How time and time again, despite Israel's failings, and you see it again and again and again and again. God's continual commitment. He continually pursues them. He continually goes after them. And as Christians, that certainly should give us hope. Because there are moments where we make mistakes. There are moments where we 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 still wrestle with sin. To know that God's love is still steadfast for us. He's still coming after us. Also to be reminded that we have Jesus who pleads our case. And because of Jesus, we can now confidently come to God. Think about it. Because of Jesus interceding on our behalf, we no longer need to stay away from God in fear, but rather we can come to him in full confidence. So as you go away today, I want you to Be reminded of Jesus, how he intercedes for us so that we could be forgiven, so that we could walk with him and experience his steadfast love. And that, that would give us the confidence to step out in faith. Here we see just the folly of Israel choosing not to trust God and choosing to choose to trust themselves or to trust something else. Because God's challenge to us is this. He says that trust me. Put your faith and trust in me. And yes, that will often mean stepping out and going into places and doing things you never thought you would do before. But trust me, because what I have for you, the promises I have for you are beautiful. The promises that I have for you are good. And that is something to give God great thanks for. Let's pray together. God, you're good. And I want to say thank you. Thank you for what you've done for us on the cross. Lord, I thank you, Lord, that you intercede for us. Lord, I want to say, Lord, forgive us. Forgive us for the moments where we fail to trust you. Forgive us for the moments where we are eager to go back to our old life of sin, when you, when you clearly say that that is slavery and you've called us out of that. Lord, I ask, Lord, Help us to trust you. Create in us a heart that trusts you, that's willing to follow you wherever you would call us. Lord, that we would be people who would choose to trust the God who called us out of slavery, who rescued us from slavery, instead of being people who run back to slavery. And Lord, as we do so, as we walk through this life, may we help us to continually remember, Lord, that you intercede on our behalf. You bridge the gap between us and God. Us, a guilty people, and God, a holy God. And Lord, that your glory and our good go hand in hand. Lord, you are worthy of the glory. You are worthy of our praise and adoration. But as we do so, it it results in our good. It actually results in our benefit. And Lord, we just want to say thank you. And I ask, Lord, that we would become men like Caleb. Men who have a passion to follow you wherever it would take us, knowing that you love us, knowing that you die for us, knowing that you intercede for us, and knowing that you fulfill your promises, God. You are a God who keeps his promises. And for that reason, we have much to be hopeful for, much to be thankful for, and much to give you praise for. So we want to say thank you, Jesus. And we just want to say, we just want to give you the praise and give you the glory. In your name we pray. Amen.